Well, I hope you've all had a great Christmas. Um, I've had a very pleasant Christmas uh, with family, and that's been lovely. Um, I have a huge love for Christmas, um, not just for the, the amazing uh, news of Emmanuel, God with us. Obviously, that's at the center of it, and that's what uh, preachers up and down the country have been saying over the last week, that we have to remember and get behind all the tinsel and the fluff and the lights. But I have to say, I love the tinsel and the fluff and the lights as well. Uh, even the really gaudy lights. Um, some of our neighbours have some very, very impressive Santa lights on the front of their house. And I think that's great. I think that's great fun. I love all the tra- traditions. I like Christmas pudding. Uh, I like watching the Queen, who incidentally is proving to be one of the better evangelists in the country. Um, a friend of mine wrote on Facebook, Ah, Christmas, the time when bishops talk about politics and politicians talk about religion. Thank goodness we have the Queen to talk about Jesus. Um, and I thought there was something in that. I love Christmas. But sometimes our Christmas traditions get in the way of seeing certain aspects of the Christmas story. I think it's because we've made Christmas the child-friendly feast of the Christian year. Uh, we've kind of edited it and cut it down to get a, a U certificate so that children can go to see Christmas. Because if we had an unedited version, maybe they wouldn't be allowed into the cinema where Christmas was showing if Christmas were a film. Um, And sometimes that means that we miss out on things that are definitely there in the Christmas story. Um, For the last couple of years, I've been following the traditional church calendar quite closely in in my own personal devotions. And one of the, the oddities of that that I noticed this year was that you go straight from Christmas into St. Stephen's Day, remembering the first martyr. And then two days after that, you have a day specifically set aside to remember the holy innocents, the children of Bethlehem slaughtered by Herod in his attempt to snuff out the light of the world. And I thought, there are some aspects of the Christmas story that pass me by quite often because they're not pretty and they don't go well with the lights and the tinsel. To be honest, our Bible reading doesn't always help. Um, We have a tendency to go back again and again to the same old familiar passages, uh, the ones that we like, uh, the ones that bring that warm, familiar Christmas glow. And actually, not just at Christmas, but in general, I think we tend to avoid those parts of Scripture which are hard or which don't immediately make a lot of sense to us. Um. And so this morning, I want us to look at an aspect of the Christmas story that I think is often overlooked, and I want us to look at it from a section of the New Testament, which I think is often overlooked, the book of Revelation. Um, In my experience, Christians react one of two ways to the book of Revelation. Either they think, this is brilliant, this is like Dan Brown, not Dan Brown, but the other Dan Brown. This This is a secret code. If we can spot the key to this, we can get a roadmap to the future, and uh, People who react that way tend to spend a lot of time obsessing over the details of the book of Revelation, trying to work out whether those funny beasts that are described might represent helicopters. Um, Seriously, I've read that in a book. Uh, The other way people react to the book of Revelation is that they're just put off by it. This is weird. There's a lot of odd stuff going on. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. There are dragons in it. What, what is that all about? 
Um, and so they just don't read it. Or perhaps, um, as I think often happens, they read the first few chapters because it's got some nice straightforward stuff about Jesus writing to the churches. And they read the last few chapters because that's got some beautiful imagery about the end of the world and, and the hope that we have. And they skip the middle bit because, let's face it, it is odd and weird. So... This is where we're going. We're going into Revelation 12 to help us to get to grips with it and perhaps to try to show a a different way of reading this book, which might be more helpful to us. I'm just going to walk us through the whole chapter first, and then I've got two very simple points that I want to make off the back of that. So that's where we're going. Walk through of Revelation 12, and then two points off the back of that, which will hopefully enrich our understanding of Christmas and prepare us well for another year. Um. I think this chapter, which is helpfully broken down to us into a couple of paragraphs, contains two scenes. The first one is in verses 1 to 6, and then the rest of the chapter is the second scene. So in the first scene, in verses 1 to 6, we have three characters. We have a woman, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, The woman here represents the people of God. The 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. uh, If you want to go back into the Old Testament, Joseph's dreams, I don't know if you remember, Joseph had a dream in which the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to him, representing his father and his mother and his brothers. And in the intertestamental period, in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this was a common description of Israel. Israel, clothed in the sun and the moon with 12 stars as a crown. So this is God's people. And the woman is in labor and about to give birth, uh, an image which has some power and relevance for me at the moment. She, She is about to give birth. Now, again, this was not uncommon language amongst Jews in the intertestamental period. Israel was going through hard times, was going through pains, and they were described by at least some Jews at the time as the birth pangs of the Messiah. The pain that Israel was going through would lead to the coming of the Messiah. So here is this woman on the very verge of giving birth. And then we have a second character, an enormous red dragon. Now, um, dragons, I think, we um, have kind of domesticated a little bit, and uh, they're not that scary to us. But I want you to get, this is a terrifying beast. In fact, John goes to great lengths to show just how scary this animal is. It is an enormous red dragon. It has seven heads, ten horns. Horns in the, in the Old Testament and in Revelation Symbols of power. He is a powerful dragon. He has seven crowns on his head. He has some sort of deep uh, power and authority. He is big. He is scary. He is not the kind of thing you want in the delivery suite. He, he is evil. Now, uh, later on in the chapter, he is, this, this dragon is firmly identified as Satan and the devil. The personification of everything that is evil and that is opposed to God. He is an awesome adversary. And here he is waiting to devour a little child. 
He's waiting for the child to be born so that he can devour it. And so we have our third character, a male child, the woman's son, one who is to rule the nations with an iron scepter. And as soon as he is born, he is described as being caught up to God's throne. The dragon's intent to devour him is completely thwarted. And instead, this child is lifted up and installed on the throne of God, the throne from which the entire universe is ruled. Doesn't put the woman out of danger. She's forced to flee. God protects her, presumably from the dragon. And she's protected and provided for by God for a period of 1,260 days. Just a symbolic way of saying a time. Okay, that's the first scene. We'll come back to what it means in a minute. Second scene. Um, I don't think it actually does follow chronologically from the first scene, and I don't think the then at the beginning is a particularly helpful translation. Um, Other versions would just have and. Um, Can I just say, actually, it's a big mistake that people make reading Revelation to try to read it as if it all followed chronologically one step after the other, and then to try to work out where on this timeline are we at current Actually, what you get in Revelation is lots of repeated imagery, lots of um, repeated cycles showing what history is like and how it will end over and over again. In fact, I think I could point you to at least four last judgments in Revelation. So we shouldn't think that it's all chronological. And quite often what we get is a scene that expands upon and deepens the scene that we've just seen. And I think that's what's going on in the second part of this chapter. Um, So we get... Heaven, we are in heaven. That may not mean the place where God lives, as it sometimes means in the New Testament. It may mean just the spiritual realm in general, which is also what it often means. And there is a war going on. And we're introduced to the character of Michael. Um, Nothing much is said about him here. If you were to read back into the book of Daniel, you'd see that Michael is introduced as an archangel, one of the chief angels, And he is the angel who is given particular charge for protecting the people of Israel. Um, He intervenes militarily in Daniel uh, in order to get prayers answered. So he is a a mighty angel. And in this uh, war, he is fighting against the dragon. Both have angel legions at their command. But Michael is stronger. The devil is cast out of heaven with all of his followers It may be, incidentally, that in the first scene where we read that a third of the stars were swept down by the dragon's tail, it may be that that is a reference to these angels who are swept down with him. may not. A little bit speculative. So the dragon is is swept, uh, is is cast out of heaven. And that leads, understandably, to rejoicing in heaven. This is a decisive victory. The kingdom of God and of his Christ has come. We should probably see this victory as being bound up with the birth of the male child in the first scene. This is the victory that Christ has won. And if you notice, he wins it by putting a stop to the devil's greatest weapon. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, 
has been hurled down. Biggest weapon the devil has against God's people is the fact that we are sinners. Biggest thing he has against us is that at any point he can go to God and say, these people deserve your judgment. Look at what they're like. But the victory that Christ has won, wiping out our sin, means that that weapon is no longer available to him. It is a decisive victory over the devil. All of this is only alluded to in the text, but it's what lies behind this rejoicing in heaven. But the focus actually is on what happens next. The dragon, having been cast down out of heaven, sets out to harass and attack, and if he can, destroy the woman and her children, the people of God. He cannot do it because she is protected by God. She is provided for. Even uh, in, the, in the sort of vivid imagery of Revelation, even the earth is enlisted as a help to protect this woman. But nevertheless, the dragon is after her and after her children because he is angry. His sphere of operations has been curtailed. He no longer has access to heaven. And his time is short and he knows it. But in the time that he has, he will attack the woman and her children with all of the the venomous hatred that he has. And actually, if you read the next few chapters, you'll be able to see uh, what that warfare is like. And although the, the woman and her children are protected, the warfare is terrible and there is suffering. Well, that's all pretty weird, isn't it? Let me make two little, not little, big points. Oh, I made little points. I will take my watch off, though, so I don't make them too big. <laughs> First point I want to make from this chapter is this. Christmas means war. Christmas means war. We like to think about the baby in the manger. Um, it's a silent night. Uh, the little Lord Jesus makes no crying, allegedly. Um, I don't know how his mother knew when to feed him. Uh, And it's all very peaceful imagery. We like to hear the angels proclaiming peace on earth. And that's great, and we should go there. Maybe not the naff stuff from the carols, but the peace on earth, definitely. But first, we need to understand that Jesus came to wage war. Now, there's a sense in which when Jesus came into the world, when the eternal word of God stepped into our life and history as the baby Jesus, there was a sense in which he was just coming to his own stuff, his own place. He made all of this. He wasn't entering into an alien world. He was entering into the world that he made, the world that belonged to him. But in the, in the famous words from the beginning of John's Gospel, which we read every Christmas, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. So yes, there is a sense in which when Jesus is born, he comes to that which belongs to him. But there is another sense in which he enters this world as a soldier. He enters this world as 
someone entering enemy territory. Christmas, if you like, is D-Day. Christmas is the beginning of the battle for the liberation of earth from sin and from Satan and from darkness. Jesus comes to wage that war. There are a couple of things uh, we need to get our heads around as we think about this. And they are hard for us. They're hard for us because we live in a culture and a worldview that doesn't really believe in anything that it can't see. And I think that affects us more as Christians than we would like to admit or realize. Because let me tell you some things which are, I think, to my ear, sound ridiculous. Let me be honest, they sound ridiculous. But if we are to believe the biblical witness to Christ, we are obliged to believe them. So let me tell you one thing. Angelic powers are engaged in warfare around us all the time. In realms that we cannot see, there is fighting going on. Spiritual forces are at work. I think um, one of the sad things that's, that's happened over 2,000 years of church culture is that angels have stopped being awesome spiritual powers and have become fluffy things, maybe slightly less than real. I, in my imagination, angels either come out as little cherubs or slightly see-through beings because it's hard to believe that they're actually real. But in this chapter, the angels are solid and they are waging war, some on our behalf and some against us. It's important that we understand that because it's important that we know that we are involved in something big, something cosmic. When we settle down to pray or when we think about how we might reach our friends and our neighborhood with the gospel, we are engaging in a warfare which the angels are fighting around us. We have powerful allies powerful enemies. It's not a little thing that we're doing. It's a thing that involves the very forces of heaven and of hell. Angelic powers are engaged in warfare around us. Second thing that I want us to see is this. The devil is real. The devil is real and terrifyingly powerful. It's one of um, his favorite tricks, I think, and C.S. Lewis agrees with me, so he must be right. To get us to think that he doesn't really exist and that we can just carry on as if there were no adversary. But there is an enemy. There is an enemy, and the way he is portrayed in this chapter is designed to be terrifying. He is powerful. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Peter describes him as prowling like a lion looking for someone to devour. This is a spiritual reality. The devil is looking for someone to eat. 
It is a frightening thing. But James tells us that if we resist him, he will flee from us. Because ultimately, this powerful enemy has no power when Jesus has won the victory, has no power after Christmas for those who will trust in Christ. If you're surprised by how hard it has been to live the Christian life in this past year, if it's, if it's caught you by surprise that you've struggled with sin so much, or if it's caught you by surprise that you've fallen and had to rely on the grace of God to pick you up again, or if it's caught you by surprise that as you've looked around the world or read the news that there are such dark and terrible things happening, Perhaps you've forgotten there's a war on. Lots of uh, World War II movies with, with air raid wardens going round. Get that light out. Don't you know there's a war on? Yes, it's been hard. There's a war on. If this year hasn't been hard for you, if this year has been a year of constant blessing. Be thankful for that. Be glad of it. But also, make sure it's not because you've not been engaging the enemy. Satan doesn't attack people who are away from the front line taking a breather. He doesn't attack people who aren't standing up for Christ. If it hasn't been hard... That may be God's blessing and protection over you. And praise him for that. But be sure that it isn't just that you're slacking in the battle. Be sure that it isn't just because when others are fighting around you and angelic powers are striving over souls around you, you're sitting down having a cup of tea. There's nothing wrong with having a cup of tea. That can be, that can be part of the battle. key test which I've had in my mind and which really cuts to the heart for me how much have I felt the need to pray over the last year if the devil is powerful and if there are evil angels waging war how much have I felt the need for help how much have I lifted up my voice and said Lord protect Maybe not enough. And maybe it's because I've forgotten there's a war on. And I've forgotten that prayer is not a luxury, but is a necessity when there are enemies to fight who are too powerful for us by ourselves. Christmas means war. And we'd be just as well not to forget it. But, and this is my second point, Christmas also means peace, real peace. This chapter actually skips over the whole of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's not because uh, it's not important to the author of Revelation. They, those things come up often in his visions. Uh, but it's because there is a point to make. The opposition of the dragon to God's Christ is absolutely futile. 
The quotation uh, there in, in our first scene, the male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, is a quotation from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a celebration of how pointless it is for anyone to oppose God's will and to oppose his Christ. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, they can do that. But God's response is, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the way that is represented in this chapter is that the Christ is caught up into heaven and installed on God's own throne. The devil can rage and he can do us real harm, but he cannot win. He cannot stand against God's Christ. I think one of the traps I fall into, again, because my culture is basically naturalist and doesn't believe in things that it can't see, one of the traps I fall into is that because I believe the Bible, I believe that God has intervened in Christ. And I believe that he will intervene to bring all things to consummation. And I completely neglect the fact that he's doing stuff in the meantime. But actually, one of the sources of peace that we see in this chapter is that God provides and protects. He gives the woman wings to fly. He provides for her. He calls on the very earth to protect her against the devil's assaults. We are protected. Because Jesus has won, because he is installed on the throne, we are fundamentally safe fundamentally safe. Won't always look like our idea of safety. Don't know if you noticed in the, the song of heaven, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This isn't the sort of protection that will protect us from death but it is the sort of protection that will protect us through death and therefore through all of the lesser troubles and assaults that we experience through our life in this world. We are safe. Whatever is happening, whatever the devil is throwing at us, Christ is on the throne. Christmas peace is peace that comes from knowing that the war that we are fighting at with its real hardships and its battles and its wounds, is already won. The time is short for the dragon. He is already defeated and cast out of heaven by the victory of Christ. Christmas means his downfall. May not yet mean the end of the fight. The fight goes on. But the outcome is no longer in any doubt. Jesus wins. And therefore, his people win. What's uh, next year going to look like? There's an awful lot that we don't know about next year. But here are some things that we do know. We know that Jesus will still be on the throne. 
2013 could be the year when every eye sees him, every knee bows. He eliminates all evil and brings in a new creation where righteousness lives. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But if it is not, he will still be ruling. He will still be king. Secondly, we know that Jesus will be opposed until the day he comes. The war will only end with his appearing and his final victory. Until then, we should not expect 2013 to be anything other than a battle. And we know that Jesus will call each of us who know him to fight and to rest. There will be a fight against sin. There will be a fight against the lure of the world. There will be a fight against the evils and injustices that we see around us. But we're called to fight with a deep confidence in the already won battle of Christ. The song of rejoicing that is currently in heaven is a song that we will be able to join in with fully and can now join in with because we know Jesus and we know that he wins.